starting now. All right, welcome back. Thank you for being here. I hope um, everyone is all right or working through <laughs> the uh, various uh, mm, difficult circumstances or upsetting uh, events in the uh, nation and the world. Um, it seems that negativity is strengthening and positivity as well, or just as Ra said, um, increase in the short run or however many decades this short run may be of individuals and groups that are polarized positive and negative. And so uh, for those who are on the positive path and um, trying to stay in balance, um, lots of challenging catalysts and yet uh, with the balance of um, engagement, disengagement, or looking in and uh, walking away, meaning um, looking into or engaging in the social process, the collective process, and then pulling back and spending time in solitude, or nature, or meditation, or rest, or music, or something, uh, we may find a balance where we can accept the unacceptable. As uh, in the book 2150, uh, the measure of a mind's evolution is its ability to accept the unacceptable, was said by one of the characters in the book 2150. And so that doesn't mean one should not act, but first step is to accept it, which means to understand it, which means to see how um, it's a lawful consequence of real causes. Of um, It's not accidental, it's not um, a matter of luck, it's not... Um, Unfounded, it's founded by real causes in the individuals and the collective um, in which those um, events are occurring. So, here we're getting close to the end of the reading of the book in Nichananda in Divine Presence. Today is section or session episode 12, <clears throat> and we're a few chapters from the end of the book and last time we went through the chapter Nityananda's Passing, Part 2, and he passed on August 8, 1961. Uh, today we'll see, we're reading the chapter, um, it's called Afterward, and there are a few different sections to this chapter, that, is, particularly the last section, which claims to be, which I guess really is, hopefully, uh, an astrological summary uh, that one of the devotees had uh, prepared for himself uh, years after Nichinanda died, <clears throat> in which, uh, presumably, if everybody's honest, um, there's a significant <laughs> uh, summary, metaphysical summary of Nichinanda from an astrological perspective uh, it, it's not his astrological condition, but <clears throat> an astrological report for a devotee uh, wherein uh, Vedic astrology uh, there's great skill in 
uh, predicting future events or giving an analysis of um, major events during the incarnation, uh, predictive astrology, or uh, life path-based event, phenomenal-based um, reading, uh, astrological commentary, uh, not just about character, right? meaning this placement indicates this portion of character, not simply that, but uh, predicting future events and also giving certain analysis of past events shown by the astrological chart by a very complete reading and the Vedic astrology seems to be um, even more complicated and um, wide-ranging than Western astrology. So we're going to see that there. A couple of um, final paragraphs from the last chapter, uh, particularly um, the last three, as I did last time, where Nichinanda was um, clearly discouraged uh, that people came, people only came to him for material gain. And he said, he is claimed to have said, what sort of grace is possible in such cases? They don't need a guru, they need a soothsayer, meaning um, they want uh, to make money or they want something material. Uh, I don't see that as commonly in the West, meaning people going to gurus asking for lucky numbers. It happens, but I think it's less common. What What's more common in the West is people going to teachers looking for a kind of emotional comfort. Not necessarily material gain, but emotional comfort. And um, absolutely, spiritual teaching and and a very fine teacher can bring can help a person move into greater emotional well-being for sure. But um, there are certain aspects, or I mean, development on the path, uh, being a seven chakra affair, and and um, ideally very very deep deep working, deep change and um, revelation of patterns that, and tendencies and truths that are possibly difficult. Like in the paragraph, do you love truth? How much do you love the truth? Are you willing to conform your mind and your life to truths that you discover that are upsetting or confusing, or disorienting even? Uh, it's just impossible to keep uh, emotional well-being as one progresses deeply in the path on the path of uh, seven chakra transformation, because there'll be uh, blockages uh, met and pain releasings, triggerings, catharsis, um, encounters, uh, breakthroughs, blockages, falling downs occasionally. Uh, where in, in emotional comfort is impossible. And uh, one should just understand that, um, like meditation, uh, spiritual path is not going to be a matter of the more I do, the more I feel better uh, directly. Uh, up and down and up and down, and uh, in, um, in association, there, there's, in association with gain and loss, or two steps forward, one step back, or two steps forward 
and then wait <laughs> and then go through the next storm. Um, that's the way the path proceeds. It's not the more I do, the more I feel better, and every time I sit in meditation, I feel happy. Cannot be. Isn't it? Just isn't that way. And so, people need to consider for themselves, and maybe it helps to understand some people around us, or some sanghas or communities, that some people are there because they really only want emotional comfort or community. And as one progresses, one is going to have to make a choice between keeping holding on to some kind of emotional comfort or moderate well-being and community versus going deeper in the transformation process. And so that's very subtle. Then, second to last paragraph, Nityananda spoke of Antaryanis, self-realized beings who lived in the world and experienced pain like everyone else. The difference between them and the rest of humanity was their ability to detach their minds from their suffering. Once established in infinite consciousness, they became silent, and while all-knowing, they, they lived as if knowing nothing. While manifesting simultaneously in unlikely places, they appeared idle. They viewed life as if it were a movie from a state of detachment, and then for Nichinanda, being detached from life circumstances, pleasant or otherwise, was the highest state. He was an Antaryani. Now that's the commentator, maybe Swami Chetanyananda or Captain Atengi, saying that um, detachment from life circumstances was the highest state. There's some truth to that. It's absolutely true, but I think there's more than that. But this type of perspective very much um, does express where Nichiyanta was coming from and who he was what his beingness manifestation was about. And so in the last paragraph after that, uh, <clears throat> Nichinanda said, um, uh, this ashram is full of things for devotees to use when visiting, but if this one, meaning himself, leaves, when he leaves, he will take nothing with him. Whatever is needed will come. This one is not flattered when important persons come or distressed when devotees fall away. Whether visitors come or not, whether they bring offerings or not, it's the same. Equal-mindedness. This one has no desire to go anywhere or see anything. I mean, there's really no spiritual teachers who even talk that way, actually. Meaning that detached from um, any subjective sense of identity. Let one's thoughts and actions reflect one's words. Meaning... A con uh, be congruent between thought, word, and deed. This is a very deep teaching, just that. This ashram's practice is not in doing good deeds. This ashram's practice is learning to be detached. Uh, anything else that happens does so automatically by the will of God, although this one will speak when somebody is genuinely interested. So, <laughs> he was manifesting um, both, I think, the omniscience and omnipotence of source, where he seemed to know um, vastly uh, that which wasn't sp told to him, but um, by um, clairvoyance and clairsentience, and then um, do magically in benefit to countless thousands of people, I guess, uh, be there to fulfill their desires when they came to him in a certain way, um, 
demonstrating yet detachment from it all. It's just uh, like the Logos um, gives to all as much as possible. There are limits, but meaning the limits of what where karma uh, limits. But uh, Godhead is um, an inexhaustible source of benefit, blessing, grace, love, light for all. Like in the Taoist understanding that the the source is inexhaustible. Um, Use it and you'll never want that kind of thing, even though everything's offered, it never ends. Yet, that was not um, to not in service of any kind of uh, acquisition or gaining. <clears throat> uh, this ashram's practice is not in doing good deeds. Of course, good deeds are good. Good is good. It brings merit. Um, yet Gautama said, "What need have I of merit?" Um, and good deeds are fine, but there's also some practice called detachment, vairagya, renunciation. <clears throat> and I think we'll understanding Nichananda from that perspective is very helpful. So, and we'll see more of that in the final section of the next chapter, which we're going to jump into now, called Afterward, <clears throat> or Word That Comes After. The first of the sections in this chapter called the Shrines of Ganesh Puri, uh, near Mumbai, Bombay, where the where Nichananda had his passing and final decades. So the, the text uh, goes on. Since ancient times, Ganesh Puri was considered a holy place, and Nityananda often recounted episodes from the ancient Puranas attesting to this. Of the area's numerous shrines, several were built and maintained by Nityananda and his followers. The old Bhimeshvar temple, situated near the old ashram, was one of these. Dr. Diodar recalled that on a visit around 1950, he noticed that the silver cobra, the nag, and cobras are commonly called naga in Sanskrit, and that's a whole other story. He noticed that the silver cobra, it was a cobra made out of silver, the nag, was missing from the temple's linga. Linga means phallic symbol. <laughs> and commonly in Hinduism you have lingam and yoni, meaning male and female symbols, genital or sexual symbols uh, associated with the religious iconography. <clears throat> okay, so there's a cobra missing from the temple's phallic, <laughs> religious phallic symbol, but he kept forgetting to tell Nityananda. This continued for some time until one day he asked another devotee to mention it for him. Hearing the belated, or lately late given news, Nityananda said, have you come here just to tell me this? Diodar always forgets. Tell him this one said to have the Naga remade, but this time in copper. He then gave detailed instructions for its size and features, directing the devotee to use a thread to show the dimensions. Finally, he said he wanted it installed on the following Monday, four short days away. Receiving these instructions, the doctor hurried at once to the marketplace, where he was directed to a certain artisan. This man, the district's only coppersmith, announced the project would take him ten days to complete. Anxiously, Dr. Diodar explained the urgency, and the coppersmith agreed to finish it by Sunday. When he, the Dr. Diodar, arrived to pick up the nog in, silver, in copper, 
The doctor saw that the cobra's eyes did not glisten as instructed. The coppersmith explained he had left off the shiny beads, fearing they would fall out and leave the empty sockets of the eyes of the nun. At that moment, a statue of Shiva was carried in from the workshop, its eyes brightly painted and shiny. The men looked at it and decided to do the same thing for the snake. Nityananda was satisfied with the results and kept it in his room until the installation, which occurred the next morning. <clears throat> That's not a very uh, profound magical occurrence, but uh, one of <laughs> countless um, coincidences and synchronicities uh, associated with Nityananda and the devotees around him. Going on, an unusual feature of the Bimeshvar temple was the continuous trickle of water from the ceiling at the rear of the dome. It had begun seeping from a number of places behind the main linga, or lingam, sometime in the 1940s, early 1940s, after Nityananda moved to Ganeshpuri. As time passed, the amount of water increased, even during the hot summers. Captain Hatengi heard this from his uncle, who added that Nityananda had cautioned him not to step on the small lingas that sprang up everywhere, wherever the water fell. And indeed, two discernible lingas, meaning phallic symbols of some, some manufacture or some, some composition, were forming in two water-filled holes directly behind the main linga. Projections of various shapes also appeared in a rough semicircle around them. Whenever Nityananda mentioned the water, he would laugh heartily at the thought of scientists coming to investigate the phenomenon. It is said that once the yogi left the old ashram for Kailas in 1956, the water slowed to a trickle and stopped completely the day Nityananda's statue was enshrined or installed in the Samadhi Mandir temple. So <laughs> he had something to do with that, and little Shiva Linga were sprouting up in the water pockets uh, from those leaks. On one of his monthly weekend visits in 1945, Captain Hatengi noticed a small shrine 200 yards from the road to the ashram. Nichinanda said he built it for the village deity, or Grama Devata, because the spot had the power of Samadhi. And it was here that Swami Muktananda later made his ashram. So Muktananda was a very famous uh, guru in the West and um, had some controversies and uh, things have changed since he passed. But uh, he was not a direct successor of Nityananda, not at all. But he was certainly someone, one of many uh, swamis and uh, accomplished yogis who came to Nityananda for some guidance or darshan. The current Krishna temple stands where once there was an old stone relic of Nandi, the bull of Shiva. Its presence has always been a mystery. Captain Hatengi recalls watching Nityananda sit on it occasionally, both feet dangling down its left side, meaning the old stone relic of Nandi, the bull of Shiva. When they began building the temple, workers tried to move the stone, but it would not budge. Hearing of this, Nichinanda ordered them to break a coconut near the bull. Once they did, two of them easily lifted the great stone. <clears throat> At the master's instructions, they then removed the bull's head, placing it on the cow statue that stands behind Krishna. 
So there may have been some spirits, some entities associated with that statue. Um, the coconut breaking could have been a form of offering to them. But <laughs> this was just one of the countless episodes where only Nichinanda knows what's happening metaphysically. Going on, with the Krishna temple finished, Nichinanda immediately turned his attention to the Bhadrakali temple. He would set a specific day for its inauguration, and the work had to be completed. <clears throat> In this instance, Mystery, one of the other devotees, had a single day to make the goddess's statue, and, per Nichinanda's instructions, he used the same cement mixture employed earlier for Krishna, for the temple, but when it was finished, the priest anxiously said her face was not attractive enough. This, Nichinanda reassured him, would be taken care of. And he ordered the statue covered with a white cloth. <laughs> At the following morning's consecration ceremony, the cloth was removed to reveal a changed face that satisfied even the priest's aesthetic expectations. Later, when asked why the hurry to build this particular temple, Nichinanda replied that Bhadrakali had followed him from Gokarn, desiring a place in Ganeshpuri, and she was not prepared to wait. <clears throat> and so, Nichinanda is uh, privy to, presumably here, a whole another level of reality, and uh, astral, and presumably higher dimensional beings, and their needs, their spiritual process, um, was very much he was very much involved in all that, and even if uh, temples, I mean, I, I would think that he was supporting the religious um, external mm, phenomena like a temple or a statue or a shrine or this and that. He was supporting those religious institutions, buildings, statues, implements, rituals, practices that were helpful to the people around him. And for someone who didn't find them helpful but was really developing well, uh, perhaps he wouldn't have been offered that. He would not have offered that. <clears throat> I mean, there, were, there was a case of three um, Muslim men who came to Nichinanda, you might recall the story, who said that they had seen him in Mecca, I guess in Saudi Arabia, uh, thousands of miles away, uh, a few weeks before, when his body was remaining in, uh, what, Kanangad, or uh, southern India, or wherever he was, or Kerala, or um, uh, near the Bombay area, Ganeshpuri. And he didn't try to tell them they should change religion. He didn't tell them they should worship Krishna. Uh, he was he presumably appeared to them because there was some karmic connection, and he could be of service. And revealing the power of the miraculous, the, the reality of the of the miraculous, um, like his statement, anything is possible. Yeah, everything, anything, absolutely is possible. And it all occurs by the will of God or by supreme uh, source uh, as the prime mover plus the law of karma. Which means that while anything's possible, not everything happens all the time. <laughs> and so, and yet the miraculous, 
<clears throat> is very uh, is very realistic. <laughs> the realistic nature of the spectacularly miraculous um, absolutely is real, and that is a useful teaching to a lot of people. Very much in line with the a deeper understanding that the physical and the metaphysical are inseparable. The physical is simply a, a sensory face of the metaphysical. And the metaphysical is the energetic and causal basis of what appears, called the physical. And that, that union of the physical and the subtle, or the, the, the gross and the subtle, the outer and the inner, the causal source, inner subtle, and the consequential or manifest apparent physical outer. Uh, that the, the, re, the reality of that unity or identity is useful, is <laughs> an important teaching. And uh, way beyond actually what most teaching, spiritual teaching uh, gets into. Because most people, again, go to spiritual teaching for emotional comfort and uh, healing pretty much um, low cell value. Most every, lots and lots of people um, have low self-value. <laughs> Better than low or high, it's good to be realistic and realistic self-understanding. So, anyway, um, it, it is interesting that he certainly was very supportive of many local temples and statuary and ritual because I think he could see that it really was helpful to the people in the, in the community around him. Then, going on, besides those actually built by him, numerous shrines were dedicated to Nichinanda after his Mahasamadhi. The first temple, built on Kanangad Rock, opened in April 1963. The one in Guruvana in May 1966. The rock temple was commissioned by B.H. Mehta from funds he collected. Known as Samadhi Mandir, the Samadhi Shrine, I think the one means in, uh, in Kanangad uh, in a from April 63. Known as Samadhi Mandir, the Samadhi Shrine was the creation of Prabhashankar Sampura, who designed the renowned Somnath Temple as well as the two Kanangad temples. The Samadhi Shrine with Nityananda's earthly remains is located on the site of the original Ganeshpuri Ashram, and so there are different temples in the south and in Ganeshpuri. Rising a few hundred or a hundred feet into the sky, the, the shrine and hall, capped by a 24-foot high dome, have an imposing beauty. The Tansa River flowing a short distance away adds to the tranquility of this holy site. Additional temples dedicated to Nityananda range from simple altars adorned with his photograph to more elaborate temples such as the one built by M. L. Gupta in Koilandi near Kalikut. With its large hall, this shrine was where the young Ram once roamed with his adopted father, Ishwar Iyer. You can see that um, <laughs> building a shrine uh, is so far less than having Nichinanda in the body in one's presence or being in the presence of his manifestation in body. Um, it's such a <laughs> far cry from having him with us uh, to going to a shrine. 
but uh, all things must pass and um, uh, that which is um, glorious um, ecstatic <laughs> rare exquisite beauty um, commonly is of a moment and that's just the way life is uh, one cannot capture uh, samadhi or stillness or a, a great being they come they go like Tathagata the thus come one just came and went as well so it's a little sad but um, that's the way this dimension is so the next section here is called Nichinanda's Photographer Nichinanda hated being photographed <laughs> I, I know where he's coming from Nichinanda hated being photographed and only a handful of images from the early days exist most of the photographs we have of him were taken decades later by M.D. Suvarna devotees often wanted a picture of Nichinanda with their families typically the young Nichinanda this is like when he was young and very thin really ascetic and uh, very radiant Typically, the young Nichinanda discouraged people from re from revering his photographs and actually admonished them for doing so. Mrs. Mr. Krishnabai, meaning the husband of his Krish Mrs. Krishnabai, the devotee, Mr. Krishnabai felt that since he had obligated the photographer in, in her, oh, maybe it's Mrs., in her own compound, yeah, so this is, should be Mrs., since she had obligated meaning um, contracted the photographer in her own compound she might be permitted to keep his picture in her house accordingly she asked the photographer to send one to her mother's house when she arrived to pick up the frame photograph it was nighttime Mangalore <laughs> Mangalore still lacked electricity in those days and with only kerosene lamps burning Mrs. Muktabai did not notice Nichinanda sitting in a dark corner as she was asking her mother about the picture, the yogi, Nichinanda, sitting in the dark corner unnoticed, exclaimed, So you want a photograph, do you? You will find it in the dung heap. Running outside, she looked to no avail. It was then that her mother said Nichinanda had smashed the framed picture with a rock. The shards, of course, now laid buried in the dung heap. <clears throat> and, um... <laughs> I have the same perspective on photographs and the star asterisk, asterisk note here is Nichinanda frowned on such things meaning um, taking pictures as he did not want his image to become an object of retail commerce I think that you could say that he also didn't like that whole mindset of taking pictures and keeping pictures as a memory um, I mean, my view is um, I'd like to see it with my eyes and however well I can be impressed by it, by my visual seeing and however well I remember in the future, so be it. I mean, it is nice to have photographs of old times and think about it, uh, but I think there's something, th there's something missing when one relies on a camera uh, to capture an image of the present moment. Um, commonly, it associates with diminished attention, meaning I don't pay as much attention 
knowing that I have a representation of it for later in the photograph than I would not having that at all. Meaning, I want to be very pre I, the the feeling to be more present now uh, is commonly um, is very much associated with not having a photographic reprodu reproduction to look at later. And um, not that people without photographs uh, are so attentive, but something that's really special and precious when uh, there's the reliance on capturing by photograph or memory reviewing later um, commonly one is less present than one could be in the moment and doesn't could be much much more deeply in communion in the present moment um, than they are while they're situated behind a camera <laughs> trying to capture it for later so anyway he was not into that photographs of Nichinanda only became readily available when M.D. Suvarna originally a press photographer came to Ganesh Puri in the early 1950s he and a colleague learning of Nichinanda's growing popularity new people would soon be demanding photographs but when they arrived at the ashram Nichinanda thundered at them, and they retreated in haste. Suvarna, however, decided to try again. <clears throat> Persistent Indian fellow. This time his persistence was rewarded. Permission was granted. After considerable pleading, under the following conditions, there should be no disturbance, no fuss, and no posing. You know, Ra, Ra also put certain conditions on L and L taking photographs of the group and individuals, actually. And those, I don't remember them, but it certainly was that each one should be dated and um, not modified in some sense. And here, Nityananda's request was that there's no disturbing anybody while you're doing your photography project and it's also not notable initially he thundered at them like how dare you get away and they retreated quickly but after trying again he relented meaning he didn't thunder further and that happens too uh, and you can say was his thundering he's so mean or he's just testing them well um, the circumstance of a first attempt is different than the circumstance of a second. Um, trying to heal myself today with this um, will lead to a different result than of trying to heal myself tomorrow with the same substance, perhaps, the same medicine or treatment. Uh, meanwhile, there's no guarantee, or I'm, I certainly wouldn't know whether what, what failed today will succeed tomorrow, but it is true that, that um, persistence may be rewarded even if one is distorted <laughs> and even Nityananda, I mean, why didn't he just smash the guy and say, no, get away um, there is some respect for free will or a desire not to harm or desire to reward that persistence or some sense that uh, other devotees would indeed gain as we have by looking at photographs. That's true. So, it's all very subtle. And, um, he certainly, I mean, some people would could criticize Nityananda 
for being angry <laughs> or um, initially denying permission. Well, I mean, as far as I know, um, each spiritual teacher has their own, they really have a personality. <laughs> it's a very highly polished, refined, uh, unified personality or non-dualistic um, empty or, or uh, universal quality, universally qualified or conditioned personality, but they're all different. And they follow their own way. And so one it's very limited, the whole thinking, what would Jesus do? I'll just do what Jesus did. Well, sometimes it just doesn't work well uh, to copy. Uh, usually, commonly, it doesn't. And yet, some kinds of uh, following to the letter are essential. So, spiritual path is very subtle. <laughs> Transformation of seven rays, which are invisible, is a very subtle work. And um, the result of transformation still is unique for each entity. Then, okay, going on, Suvarna first traveled to Ganeshpuri as a photographer, but soon became a devotee. Whenever work brought him to Bombay, he made a point of visiting Ganeshpuri on Thursdays and shooting a roll of film. The resulting images consistently portray Nityananda's mystical power, compassion, and inner bliss, said the writer. Some are so good that they may be mistaken for posed portraits. That's true. Others show considerable variance in Nityananda's physical appearance from picture to picture, a fact pointed out by the sculptor Mr. Wag, who utilized them for the altar shrine in the Samadhi shrine, the altar statue in the Samadhi shrine. That's also a strange matter of photographs. As an experiment, in the late 1950s, Mr. Suvarna exposed several hundred feet of motion picture film. In fact, there is a YouTube video of Nityananda walking around and even talking a bit. It's very interesting. In the late 1950s, Mr. Suvarna exposed several hundred feet of motion picture film, taking snippets at odd moments and later splicing them together. It was the first time he had handled such a camera, and his results were remarkably good. Oddly, however, on occasion, the developed film was completely blank. For instance... Once he wanted to photograph Nichinanda returning from his morning walk. After having a hole bored in the wall of a nearby hotel, <laughs> he's like a paparazzi fellow, Mr. Suvarna waited with his pre-adjusted camera and took several shots of the master passing. But the developed film was blank. He repeated the experiment with the same result. Suvarna recalls Nichinanda sometimes asking him, What is the value of so many pictures? Are you still not satisfied? And then he would smile. Yeah, Suvarna would be a perfect paparazzi who just doesn't really care about the uh, the object, uh, the subject of his uh, photography, but just wants as many pictures as he can because that uh, just turns his uh, dial. And um, <laughs> it's like endless selfies. It's a very crude mind, I think. One last time. On a particularly important occasion, Suvarna's cameras unaccountably, unaccountably malfunctioned. It was August 10, 1961, two days after the Mahasamadhi. The body had been placed in an easy chair, mounted on a jeep, and driven slowly around the Ganeshpuri compound, a procession that, despite a steady drizzle, Suvarna managed to capture on film. 
Then the body was taken inside the old ashram for burial. From different vantage points in the room, Suvarna and his cousin each took a roll of film during the ceremony, but later they discovered that not one exposure came out. There is also a magical and metaphysical perspective or mm, dynamic associated with photography. Um, there are, I heard the story of some king in Africa, Afri tribal king, native indigenous group, uh, chieftain, or some groups in Africa. I have the belief that you shouldn't be, they shouldn't be seen while eating. Someone might steal their spirit from their mouth, or there's a vulnerability while eating in that uh, the mouth is open and food comes in. That itself is an opening to the entity for a black magician or an evil fellow to take something spiritually of value from the person who's uh, ingesting food, or the king or the chieftain. There is some truth to that type of metaphysics that there is a magical potential there are magical dynamics in play in many of the common physical activities we do and many and um it may well be that nichinanda from the other side or from the subtle in the room uh prevented their pictures from being exposed because uh, there was a subtle dynamic that shouldn't have been harmed and they would have been exposed, it would have been harmed by exposure or people later looking at the photographs with various states of mind could have done some metaphysical harm somehow um, and or the energetics, the metaphysical associate, the metaphysics associated with photography in that uh, situation um, created a kind of magical vulnerability or did some harm metaphysically and um, Nichinanda just shut it off so there is there, there's much more going on than we realize and sometimes what so called primitive or tribal groups think and we say oh some people <laughs> the smart intellectuals and scientists may say oh that's superstitious that's just symbolic ha uh -huh because they're so smart, they know. Just because it could be symbolic doesn't mean it is. Just because it is symbolic doesn't mean it's only symbolic. <laughs> so, that's, there is <laughs> much more going on than, than uh, is taught in the universities. Next section, Sri Nichinanda Arogya Ashram, Arogya Ashram Hospital at Ganeshpuri, this is a small section about a hospital that came to be uh, from his inspiration. The beginning of Sri Nichinanda Arogyashram is in some way connected with the late Dr. M. B. Cooper and the herbal wonder drug revealed to him by a Himalayan saint long ago. Through vibrational guidance and his own genius, he successfully prepared an injectable solution from the original formula which he initially prescribed for tuberculosis. However, Dr. Cooper knew the Himalayans took it both to combat disease and to maintain health, and further research proved the compound's broader curative properties. I'm not sure what this is. Um, it sounds a little bit um, like fulvic acid, but there's all sorts of... I um, absolutely don't know what they mean here. 
As a result, over the years, he helped patients suffering from asthma and other lung ailments, skin diseases, arthritis, cysts, as well as tuberculosis, even advanced cases. He named the remedy Mahawaz, the great sound, because of the cosmic sound that seemed to direct his research. Dr. Diodar had been Dr. Cooper's assistant since the late 1930s. A decade later, he became a devotee of Nichinanda and, after seeking the master's advice, left general practice to concentrate on Mahawaz. He was told the remedy would be successful if administered through an ashram hospital, but that such a project would require great patience and perseverance on his part, because it would take a long time to materialize. Eventually, Dr. Diodar and B.C.S. Swami, a fellow devotee, brought Dr. Cooper to Ganeshpuri. Upon first seeing Nichinanda, the doctor was overwhelmed and had to leave. But he later returned with an ampule of Mahawaz to show the yogi. Again, Nichinanda said it would succeed. A few months before the Mahasamadhi, Dr. Diodar and Mr. Swami presented a proposal for a hospital to be built at Ganeshpuri. Nichinanda immediately approved the idea and asked for a map of the ashram's property. He indicated where he wanted the future hospital built, giving them the piece of land along with a cash donation. He said to proceed in three stages, indicating with his hands and saying, first small, then big, then very big. In 1963, the Nichinanda Arogyashram Trust was formed, and in December 1966, the hospital's foundation stone was laid by Swami Chinmayananda in the presence of a distinguished audience. Today, one of the district's finest hospital buildings, its spacious and airy rooms are within walking distance of the Samadhi Shrine in Ganeshpuri. Dr. Cooper donated the Mahawas formula to the trust. Although he and Dr. Diodar received fabulous offers for this formula, they were determined to maintain its availability to common people. Similarly, his daughter, Dr. M. H. Pavri, also a doctor, and his son, Mr. Cooper, gave up their rights to any entitled royalties. Upon the death of her father in August 1980, Dr. Pavri assumed responsibility for the hospital as well as for the manufacture and development of the herbal extract. It would be interesting to look into that um, Mahawaz formula. I'll take a look myself and see what I can find. And then the final section of this chapter afterward is called So Say the Stars. It's short, but it's actually, I think, the most important uh, section of the chapter. And one could say, well, um, it was worked over by Captain Hatengi himself uh, to conform as a sort of <laughs> statement of praise and devotion to Nityananda. On the other hand, uh, maybe indeed it was just what they told him. So, the section begins, So Say the Stars. There is considerable interest today in Vedic astrology, and ancient science predating its Western counterpart, it's not and, uh, an ancient science predating its Western counterpart by millennia. To this end, readers may be interested in a horoscope prepared for Captain Hatengi in March 1970. Incidentally, the Western word horoscope 
is of ancient Greek derivation and refers to looking at time. Uh, horos um, is of uh, root, etymological root, meaning time, but may well be related to god Horus, who may have had something to do with time in Egyptian mythology. So time scope or time looking, um, looking at time as uh, the horoscope shows configurations of uh, events and character um, and experience phenomena associated with temporal flow. In such instances, sages with intuitive wisdom chart all possible permutations and combinations to develop the pattern of a subject's life, meaning <laughs> that's the high level of the highest levels of uh, Vedic astrology. Um, done by those that are committed to a spiritual practice, not just um, reading books. In India, these are, so this is a special kind of astrological reading. In India, these uh, charts done by um, yogis, these are called Nadi Granta readings, full of great detail. They include the names and charts of individuals influencing the subject in good or bad ways, often referring to previous incarnations. That's a real serious reading. However, such readings are primarily useful in understanding a subject's past and inherent tendencies. So this is characterological astrological reading, reading character and tendencies in mind and um, strengths and weaknesses even of mind and personality and character through the reading rather than predictive or um, past life based uh, reading. Present and future predictions, predictive reading, often prove unreliable because of the ongoing play of human will and divine intervention. That's <laughs> There is human will and free will and there's divine intervention. Mm. In Captain Hatengi's case, at the age of 28, he was shown to meet a great being who would affect his life quite favorably. There was a lengthy description of this being, which we include here in an edited form. And this is um, the several paragraphs, uh, five paragraphs, that uh, presumably, that, that pretty clearly um, describe Nityananda from this Nadi Granta reading and the perspective of the yogi, yogic and yog, yogic astrologer who prepared it. It's very interesting. Uh, paragraph 1 of the 5. He came to the world for the sake of his devotees, a great yogi. Nothing is known of his birth or his age. He has fed thousands of sannyasis and sadhus. While ever in samadhi, he talks. While ever with Atman, He's never in the body. He talks directly to God. Long-limbed and with a vibrant personality, he sometimes goes naked and sometimes wears a loincloth. Although few recognize him, he is God in human form. He is called by a name beginning with the letter N. He sits near hot springs and a Shiva temple and does not engage in outward activities, giving the impression of doing nothing. Money he takes from his loincloth as needed. He removes difficulties and occasionally prescribes medicines. Ignorant people never see his true nature. While these words cannot possibly relate his greatness, 
a devotee will come in due course and describe him properly. Others who write about him will succeed only if they are inspired by him, and then only if he wishes it. Eventually books will be written about him, and many will make money in his name. At the time of this reading, he is no longer in human form. This was 1970 reading. His many devotees include highly evolved sannyasis and members of royalty. Numerous ashrams and shrines are built in his honor, but he never recognized or initiated disciples. Correct. No one was fit to receive the knowledge of God from him. Although he has taken Mahasamadhi, his blessings remain with his devotees. When you think of him, he is with you. Anyone who approaches him with purity of motive is granted their wish. How can we describe such a being? He might deliver harsh words or actions, saying, Mati Mati, it is of no consequence. But blessings always fall on the recipient. He sees with equal sightedness, treating everyone the same, regardless of social position. But people pursue him with material desires, not with spiritual aspirations. Still, his guiding light is always available to both the devout and the spiritual seeker. Sadly, most devotees never really knew him. No one was powerful enough to succeed him or receive what he could grant, but he still blesses the devotees and he remains without disciples. <clears throat> and so there's a difference between devotees and disciples. The devotee has devotion, coming on bhakti maga or bhakti pad, meaning coming with bhakti. Guru, you know, you'll see at the end of this document, uh, the author says, Mahaguru bhakti means a great guru love devotion, great uh, love and devotion to the great guru teacher. Uh, those are devotees. Um, we who feel love, um, devotion, great respect, admiration, um, love and loyalty, <laughs> and um, affection for Nityananda. But that's not a disciple. <laughs> disciple gets one-to-one -one advanced training. And um, if successful, uh, becomes a successor. But it's absolutely the case with Nityananda and, and a number of others, actually. Um, Lin Chi didn't have a suitable successor. Uh, Yun Men didn't have a suitable successor. Um, Chinese, these Chinese Chan teachers. Uh, very common. That, that I mean, in a, in a certain way, uh, a lineage holder um, is not even a successor. <laughs> Meaning, there may be a lineage of a particular sect or portion of Buddhism or Hinduism or one of the groups, uh, and over generations, teachers pass um, authority, teaching authority, to a successor that successor commonly would be a disciple before becoming the successor. But that doesn't even mean that they um, are of comparable development as their teacher. And the greatest, every, every teacher knows, <laughs> it's a secret among teachers, that uh, the really successful teacher um, generates or cultivates or raises up disciples who are better than the teacher who are greater. The great 
the greatest of the teachers or gurus raise up disciples who surpass them <laughs> in development. Now, I don't know who the heck could have surpassed Nityananda, probably nobody. Uh, there are those that are comparable, right? I don't think that he had a problem with with Ramana Maharshi or um, such a Sai Baba of uh, Sai Baba of Shirdi, not not Afro Sai Baba, but his his prior incarnation or something, Sai Baba of Shirdi, and um, some other gurus or teachers. I think Nityananda had a lot of respect for. Some of them might have been comparable. Um, but none was a successor nor a disciple directly. And so he didn't have disciples. <laughs> I mean, because, because nobody can... Uh, the, only, the only one at that level is, is basically like a Buddha or an avatar. And those that have attained Gata, uh, Buddha, avatar, nirvana, like um, some of the, the forest monks, I would think, you know, to me, Webu Sayadaw or Ajahn Lee, Tamadaro, uh, definitely knocked the ball, knocked it out of the ball, uh, knocked the ball out of the park, uh, broke the bottom of the bucket. Um, they don't need to come to Nichinanda for something. Uh, they may not be of uh, comparable power or development in a sense, in some, in the specific, in the detail. But they're where he was, or uh, free from required incarnation in the octave. So I think that this final, these final paragraphs uh, from the uh, Nadi Granta reading, is really are, are really uh, emblematic or capture uh, Nichinanda's uh, manifestation or his uh, life quite well. That there's very little known about him, his birth, his age. Um, he was really beyond everyone in development around him. Everyone around, there was no one around him of comparable development, not one, including all the swamis and sadhus that came and went. And uh, you can see also um, manifestation or demonstration of the teaching of vairagya or detachment. Sometimes he's naked, sometimes he's wearing a cloth. Um, he is generally quiet, but sometimes he talks. Uh, he has money, <laughs> abundant. He manifests money from his underwear, from his loincloth. He appears to be doing nothing, but he's doing much more than <laughs> than he ever presents or that anyone around him can conceive of. Uh, ignorant people don't see his true nature. Although few people recognize him, he's God in divine form or human form. Uh, yeah, I think so. Um... There are all sorts. There's a whole range of people who come to him as devotees. He actually never took a disciple, and so he wasn't intending to uh, continue a lineage succession line. He wasn't intending to start a school. He wasn't intending to have a successor uh, that would carry on uh, his uh, activity. He certainly chose people who would carry on the charitable organizations and deeds and works like feeding children or feeding sadhus or the hospital or the shrines he certainly put into place 
um, people and um, protocol that would keep those structures and activities continuing, but not a lineage holder successor, because there was no lineage, <laughs> and uh, that's not what he was coming here for. And so, this, in 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 much of what's written here in this Nadi Granta reading, um, you see vairagya or detachment and um, this seeing with equal sightedness treating everyone the same regardless of social position it's not that he's treating everyone the same actually it's just that social position high and low doesn't matter to him what he's looking at is with is within the beingness the the tendencies the karmic stream uh, the unique um, manifestation the unique gestalt of each person approaching him, it seems to me. And then what that one or individual needs. Um, he's not wowed by rich and famous, and he's not discouraged by poor and miserable. Uh, that's a kind of equal-sightedness, and that's considered actually a very high level of development in Buddhism and Hinduism. Uh, it's certainly a freedom from the eight worldly winds, particularly the the social related ones such as praise and blame and honor dishonor but more than that um, it's looking at a deeper level of um, the people who approach um, we can see face and body and gender and age and social position and intellect even some are smart some are not smart some are virtuous, some are not virtuous. Some are lovely, some are unappealing uh, in appearance. Okay, uh, what's the point? <laughs> what's the point of, um, of my being here when they're approaching? Mm, what's, what, what is the purpose for which he's living or one is living a life? Uh, those are all details. They can give us some information. But his purpose was service you know, teaching and service by direct action, uh, by magic, by city, magical appearance. Uh, and um, he his equal treatment was um, of the way of detached service, vairagya seva, <laughs> the seva of vairagya, and uh, miraculous um, wish fulfillment. So, magical wish fulfillment, service, with detachment, um, encouraging detachment, actually, um, but not many people got that. Meaning, the way he lives his life is um, a demonstration of vairagya, or detachment, or renunciation. And only those with eyes to see could get it. Um, and it just is interesting to me <laughs> in this world of uh, 3D repeating souls um, how little known Nityananda is while he's head and shoulders above anyone, nearly anyone else I've seen and um, same thing with Aramaterial how little it's known Some <laughs> people sometimes say oh yeah yeah I know Aramaterial uh -huh, uh -huh. meaning it made no impression on them okay and so um, that's just the way it is. Um, 
few there are who um, can look into the face of the sun. <laughs> that they, they love the face of the sun. Okay, fine. So uh, no one succeeded him. No one fully got and understood him. Uh, he was very present and very detached. And um, uh, a gift to this planet in the 20th century uh, and beyond. Uh, so I'm very pleased to be able to read this and um, bask in the light a bit as well. So that'll be it for today. Next time, uh, the last second to the last chapter called Remembering the Master. More from Captain Hatengi. Uh, there'll be two chapters. And that's it's a nice overview again of um, his... I mean, he was the person... Uh, he, he is the co-author or the compiler of these stories of Nityananda's life. And so he probably... He, is the one who perhaps compiled or chronicled Nityananda's life best and um, had love and devotion naturally. So next time we'll look at uh, the second to last chapter Remembering the Master and I hope this has been helpful I hope everyone's well take good care of yourself and good night <laughs>